we've, we just finished a sermon series. We were walking through various psalms. And as we uh, get into next week, we're going to do an, an Advent series that Pastor Andy will be leading us through. So I have this, I have this one Sunday here in between. And um, I've been excited about talking about what we're going to talk about today. I actually considered this sermon uh, several weeks ago, and I, and I wanted to, to give it to coincide with our members meeting, which was actually scheduled for last Sunday originally. And we, we bumped that. Now that's going to be on December 9th. Um, so I'm not preaching on December 9th. And I thought, well, this is my one shot then to kind of get this in. I, this, I think this is an important message for us as we head into that members meeting because I think there's things in that members meeting that we'll want to discuss together that uh, will flow out of what we get out of God's word here today. But the, the title of my church, of my, my church, of my sermon is, is the healthy body of Christ. It's a, it's a message about who we are, what we are, what we should be, could be, as the body of Christ here at Edgewater. And there's, there's three primary motivations for this message today. The first is that it's just, it's important to know who we are as the people of God, right? We've been called together by God into this family called the church. We, we gotta know what, what is that, what is that all about? What does that mean? What was God's purpose in doing that? And we should be desiring to work together towards the ideal of the church, which is this, every member of the church playing a critical role, every one of us, valued by God, saved by God, loved by God, called by God, right? We're, we're all important. So every member playing a critical role in the overall health and growth of the church. We've been looking at scripture passages and singing songs this morning that have been reminding us we have spiritual gifts, each of us, that the Holy Spirit indwells each of us and his has given to us various gifts, different gifts, for the edification, for the building up of the body. And these gifts have to be encouraged, and these gifts have to be employed. So we got to re be reminded about all these things that are true about who we are. That's, that's the first motivation, okay? The second one is that we have to do that often because, and this is particular to our context, we have a church that changes a lot. Right, we we live in a in a community that that's that's highly transient. That transience affects the church. So we'll talk about who we are and what we're supposed to be. We'll we'll kind of cast this vision for you know what the what the the body here at Edgewater ought to look like, and we'll think oh we we've, we've taught through that and we're trying to implement that. And just when you think the ball is starting to roll, you look around and you realize wait a lot of the people who were here when we started to teach that are gone now. And we've got a whole bunch of new faces, right? That happens regularly here. It seems about every two years or so, the active membership of the church is very different. So that's another motivation for me. We, we, we need to keep talking about this, and I'm not sure we've done that in a while. And so I want to refresh us, and I want to keep doing that regularly. So first, first motivation, we just need to know who we are, understand what it means to be God's people. Second motivation, that's... A, especially important for us because we change a lot. The third motivation is that I've been reading a guy named Martin Bootser recently. Um, Bootser was one of the original leaders of the Reformation, living in Strasbourg in France, right on the Rhine River, sort of the border of Germany, 
in the early half of the 16th century. I'm wondering how many of you have ever heard of Martin Bootser. I'm guessing probably very few of you have. But I will say this, even though you haven't maybe heard of Martin Bootser, you are indebted to him. If you're a Protestant, like we are, who loves the gospel of Jesus Christ and who loves the church. In fact, much of what we experience in terms of structure uh, here at Edgewater is, has been greatly influenced by Bootser. Go figure. Some guy you never even heard of. I know you've heard of John Calvin. John Calvin, along with Martin Luther, of course, are probably two of the most well-known of the Reformers. What you may not know is that without Martin Bootser, there's a good chance that John Calvin would have faded into obscurity. I'll tell you just a brief history and a little story about that. So John Calvin, uh, again, you know, I don't know how much Calvin any of you have read, but you may, you may get the sense, and if you do, you're right, that Calvin was a little bit of a kind of a, 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 a bristly guy, all right? He was a bit of a fiery leader. And early on in his ministry, when he was a very young man in his, in his 20s, he was called to, to pastor a church in Geneva, and this was the beginning of the Reformation, and so he went in there with this, this grand desire to, to reform the church, to see you know, all of the, the heretics kind of kicked out and purity brought in and God's word, and he, and he went in there with, with so much gusto that he got himself fired. In fact, he, 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 he had called uh, like the, the magistrates and the leaders of the, of the Catholic Church in the area, he'd called them devils from the pulpit. And that didn't sit very well with a lot of folks. And I thought, this guy, like, he, might, he might have a lot of like, really good biblical ideas, but he's a little too rough. And they fired him. And so if that was the end of the story, and it could have been, you probably never would have heard of Calvin. But what happened was, Calvin made his way down to Strasbourg and into the presence of Martin Bootser, who was a, a, an older pastor, uh, a little less, I mean, he was, he was just as fervent about what he believed, but he was a little less bristly about it. And he took Calvin under his wings and, and kind of helped shape him and teach him what it means to not just be a man of the truth, but a pastor, a guy who loves people, a guy who's patient with people and wanting to see them formed. And so he really shaped the man that John Calvin became. And then Calvin ended up back in Geneva and the Reformation that you know about under his influence began to happen. So that said, Bootser, even though in a, sort of an unknown guy, was a very influential and very important figure in that, uh, in that period of the Reformation. So I'm telling you that because, again, I've been reading him lately and he inspired this message for me. So I'm taking a chapter from Bootser's work. He has a book called Concerning the True Care of Souls. Concerning the True Care of Souls. And I'm sermonizing it. Okay? Um, now there's lots of scripture in it. So my sermon isn't, I'm not preaching Bootser this morning. We're preaching the word of God. It's full of scripture references and we're going to look at all of them today. But the points, the three points of the message have been influenced by Bootser's chapter as I've been reading through it. There's three points. The first one is this. We'll dig into it. Christians, especially in the local church, have a total and perfect unity among themselves. Let me say that again. Christians, especially in the local church, have a total and perfect unity among themselves. 
You're going, we do? We do. Would you flip over to Ephesians chapter 4? And we'll put it up on the screen as well. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read together verses 1 through 6. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he doesn't tell them what ought to be. He tells them what is. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One. Unity. And he's encouraging them to strive for it. If you would follow along in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're flipping in your Bible, you go back to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says something similar to another church in Corinth. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. For just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. What these verses do is they work together to convey one of the most astounding truths of the Bible. I really mean it when I say that. To convey one of the most astounding truths of the Bible because they speak of a radically different way of thinking about what it means to be God's people. It's a very radical new way of thinking for the church. God's people, this phrase, right? We'll understand that better when we evaluate it through the lens and in the light of the first century context here in which Paul was writing into and, and who, who original, originally received this letter. And we'll also understand it as we view it through the lens of Bootser and the 16th century Reformation context. So that's what I want to do for just a few minutes here. Let's read the Ephesians passage again. Yaz, would you put the, that one back up on the screen? Let's read that one again with Paul's first century context in mind. And again, consider what most people would have been thinking when they heard the phrase, God's people. First century, right? The church is, is, is brand new. Jesus has been born and lived and died and resurrected all within this century. And the church is just beginning to bud. And so this, this phrase, God's people, was taking on new meaning, but it had meant something for thousands of years. What did it mean? Well, God's people, that phrase, had up to this point meant Jewish descendants of Abraham. They were the recipients and the observers of the Mosaic law. So that's what it had meant. But then, of course, the gospel was growing, and it was going forth into the whole world, and Christian churches were now being established in areas that were predominantly non-Jewish, but instead Gentile, or or, or they were of the nations. Gentile is just sort of a catch-all word that means any of the surrounding peoples of the world who were non-Jews. 
And Ephesus was one of those cities where the church was being established. And again, where you had this predominantly Gentile uh, group of people living. But not entirely. There were Jews there. So what was happening in the church was there was, there was segregation problems that were beginning to raise up. The Jewish Christians had a hard time reorienting their thinking. They're still, they're still thinking we're God's chosen people. Right? So even though there's this, this sort of understanding that that's expanding to the Gentiles, there's this identity crisis for them. And they keep kind of shifting back and forth into thinking that, no, my, this identity as the people of God has something to do with my ethnic heritage. It has something to do with my, my Jewishness. And because of that struggle, that identity crisis... Sometimes, and perhaps we could say often, because so much of the New Testament writing addresses this, the Jewish believers were having a hard time viewing the Gentile believers as equals. And so the Gentile Christians are often struggling with this identity crisis of their own. They're, they're experiencing an inferiority complex. And it led to a lot of problems in the churches. It led to squabbles in the churches. And so Paul writes into that environment. He writes into that context and he gives them an important reminder. Look back up on the screen here or look down at your Bibles. What's he saying to them? He's saying, look, no, you are one people. You're not Jew and Gentile anymore. You're one people in Christ. Now, that's not, that doesn't diminish your Jewishness or your non-Jewishness. But it supersedes that with a greater unity, a greater reality. That's now first and foremost who you are. You're one in Christ. That's true because of the gospel. Think about this. I mean, what, what is it that the gospel came to do? What did Jesus come to do? Why did he die? He took our sins upon Himself, right? He put that to death. And His resurrection was that the overcoming, the conquering of sin. And our faith in Him, our trust in Him, our belief in the good news, the gospel of His life, death, and resurrection is our, is our, uh, our passageway. It grants us that freedom in Christ. That's what the gospel does. It overcomes sin. What, what does sin do? It divides us. You go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you look at the consequences of sin and, and the, the great human level consequence of sin was that it not only divided us from right relationship with God, but from right relationship with each other. Adam and Eve are no longer, their oneness has been severed and now they've got conflict. And very shortly thereafter, we start to see that conflict taking shape in terms of nations and ethnicities and other further divisions, all a result of sin. So Paul's saying, Jesus came and did something about that. So yeah, we live in a world where there's this, there's this divide. There's so many things that divide us. There's so many things that try to segregate us and lump us into various groups that, that are not just various groups that exist in bubbles on their own, but conflict with each other. And compete with each other and fight and squabble. And, and, and you're seeing that still happening even in the church. But it shouldn't be that way because that's what Jesus came to undo. You're one in Christ. 
That's, that's why we talk about this at Edgewater. I hope enough, probably need to keep reminding ourselves to talk about this often and regularly, but, but this idea of, of, of reconciliation, of, 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 of unity across societal divides should be such an important part of who we are, who we see ourselves as, as the people of God. We live in a, in a society that's so divided. So what's the, what's the, what's the beauty of the church in a divisive place like the world that we live in? It's that Jesus comes to overcome the sin that divides and make us one, to restore us to the unity with Him and with each other that was intended at creation that, that sin broke. And this is Paul's reminder to them, don't you understand who you are? You're one in Christ. That's what it means to be the people of God. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has nothing to do with your heritage. It has everything to do with your faith in Jesus. That you were once united as sinners, and that caused division. But now you've been united in Christ, and that brings unity. That's what it means to be the people of God. And again, he says the same thing to the Corinthian church. If you would, Yaz, put that passage back up, 1 Corinthians 12. Verses 12 and 13. He says it here very explicitly as he's talking about the things that had once divided them. He says, look, you're not Jews or Greeks anymore. You're not, you're not slaves or free anymore. You're, you're one. But then he begins to talk about this, this other uh, analogy here, this other metaphor that he begins to use. And he's talking about that oneness taking shape as a body. You're all members together of that one body. This oneness that you have isn't just sort of nebulous. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't diminish your individuality, but it brings all those pieces together to form a oneness like, the, like a body. Where yes, there's arms and there's, there's chests and there's legs and there's different parts, but they have different functions and they look different, but, but they, are, they work together in unity just to create something that's a whole. And I, I, I want to I now go and, and, and look at this through the eyes of Bootser because I think that will be helpful for us as well. So Paul's trying to remind us of this unity that we have in Christ. And he begins to talk about this idea of body. Think about the time of Bootser. Reformation. Do you know much about the Reformation? What, what had happened? What led up to the Reformation? The reason that the Reformation happened was because the church... Uh, had, had, had divided into two parts a long time back. You had the Eastern Church and you had the Western Church. And the Western Church had its seat in Rome. And it's what we know today as the Roman Catholic Church. That was the church throughout the Western world. And that was the church in Europe. That's where much of our heritage comes from. But what had happened was over time, there was a corruption that was beginning to take shape in the church where they've lost this idea of of unity and oneness and body and different parts. And it, it, it began to take on the form of, of something that looked far more like just a top-heavy institution. And so for the, for, for the people living in Bootser's day, when you talked about the church, you weren't thinking about you or the people around you. You were thinking about the priests and the bishops and the magistrates and the pope and the institution. 
that felt very separate from you. And so Bootser brings these passages back to light. He says, look, this unity that Jesus brought about, this idea of this, this body metaphor that he's talking about here has, has significance to it as well because, because you're not just united nebulously, but, but there's a purpose and a reason for that unity that very much includes all of you. You all have a role to play. You, you all are a significant part of that body. And he's quoting here from 1 Corinthians 12, as, as Becky read to us a little bit earlier, you, you, know, you can't have one body part say to the other body part, I don't need you. And if you're all the same body part, then think of all the, all the senses and all the, all the functions that you don't, you don't have anymore. And so Boots are saying it, it, it means to be God's people, not just that we're, that we're one in Christ, but also it means this. It means that we're all actively working together as the body. So when we say Christian fellowship, especially in the local church, has this perfect unity, according to the Lord and His economy and what He's designed, that's absolutely true. The key is, are we living according to the calling that we've been given. Secondly, Christian fellowship is not only united, this, is, this one flows from the first, but it's truest and keenest, that's a Bootser word, truest and keenest with everyone using their spiritual gifts for the edification of one another. Right? So again, this flows from that. It's just we're drilling a little bit deeper. We're not just this, this unified body, but that fellowship is truest when we are all using those spiritual gifts for the building up of one another. If we're one body in Christ, how do we function as one? Jeremy led us through a prayer out of Romans chapter 12. I'm going to put Romans 12 back up on the screen. Specifically, look at verses 4 through 8. For as in one body, same, same metaphor here, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Let us use them. And then he goes on to list various gifts that the Spirit gives and is encouraging the use for the edification and the building up of the body. The point is this, the body needs all of its parts to function properly. The, the church needs all of its members using the gifts that they've been given and the differences that they have together in unity in order to function properly. Now I want to flesh that out a little bit more as we get to application but I want you to understand that that's such an important concept. That's the church that God intended. Everybody matters. Everybody's involved. And you say, well, but aren't there body parts that have more important functions? Aren't there more important members than others? That, that, that might have been the, the mindset that was going on in Bootser's day that led people to kind of pull back and just sort of let the priests and the bishops kind of do all the church stuff. Aren't there more important members than others? 
Well, remember what we were read to, uh, again, out of 1 Corinthians 12, as Becky read it to us a little bit earlier. Let me remind you, verses 18 through 27. I'm going to find it. Here we go. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one is honored, all rejoice together. Again, kind of building on that same idea. Every member is important. And are there more important members or body parts than the others? No. We, we want to think that there are, right? We want to think, well, the head, the head is, is far more important than the limb. And yet what, what Paul is telling us here is that's not true. In fact, it's the weaker members that somehow God has granted greater honor to. The church won't function properly. It'll, it, it'll institutionalize really quickly if, if the other parts aren't doing their job. So you think about a, this metaphor of a, of a body, you, know, you, you, you can kind of get this picture of a baby. You know, babies are like all head, right? Big head and kind of little, little body floating around. Right? That's not what the church is supposed to look like. In fact, we're, we're, what we're told in these passages is that the, the point of every member working together for the good of the body is maturity. No babies. No big-headed, little-bodied people. But a mature body where all the parts are working together for the benefit of the whole. And what's the result of everyone being involved? Well, that's exactly the, that, that idea, all the parts working together for the whole, that Paul talks about again to the Ephesians in chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is an interesting thing that he's saying. I think, I think we can say it like this. There either is or isn't. There either is or isn't growth in the local church depending upon the involvement of every member of the body. When every member is doing its, its, its God-intended gift, when we're all a part of this thing, Growth happens. And when we're not, it just won't. So what Paul is trying to convey in all these different passages, what the Lord is trying to, to give to us for his design to the church, what, what Bootser was trying to, to lead the, the people in the Reformation era to understand is this. 
Look, Christians in the local church are called to look after one another. Everyone. We're called to look after one another in spiritual matters. It is not the role of the institution. It's not the role of the leaders alone, but of everybody. And then one more thing. One more thing, again, to kind of help us drill down and to bring this down to sort of street level. What does that, that kind of care look like? The third thing is this, that Christian fellowship is to be concerned not only with the spiritual needs of the body, but also the temporal needs as well. We're not just to be concerned about the spiritual needs of the body, but also the temporal needs as well. What was the first church doing together? Acts chapter 2. It's a very familiar passage. One of the most beautiful passages when we consider our understanding of what a, what a healthy church looks like. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together. And get this, they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anyone had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And what happened? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was growth. Not just spiritual growth for the body, but numerical growth in the church. Right? And 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, Paul says to the church in Corinth, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So Paul is helping us understand here, and Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us by his word and saying, look, every member of the body matters, is involved for the building up, for the edifying of the church, and that edification isn't just that we're growing spiritually in Christ, but that we're, there's tangible expressions of that unity taking shape materially in the world that we're we're loving and caring for one another you think about the idea of divisiveness being overcome through the unity of christ how is divisiveness so often observed how is how does divisiveness so often manifested in the world it manifests itself regularly through inequalities Right? We, we, we not only divide up into groups of political ideals or, or ethnic you know, origins or, or all the other things that can divide, but, but those divisions tend to create power structures that give you haves and have-nots. 
And so within the church, there's a recognize, there is a recognition that if, if Jesus is bringing us together as one people, then that, that doesn't just have something to do with how we understand our identity. It's got to deal with the power structures and the inequalities that we experience materially every day. If the, if the world is going to see the church as something different and a power in the, in, the, in, the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus to truly bring about unity, then it can't see lack in the people of God. We've got to love each other and care for one another like we're one. I, I think we struggle with that in the church. I mean, we, we, we do struggle with that in the church. Uh, and I wonder if in the Western church, if one of the biggest reasons why we struggle with that is because we, we have a hard time shaking sort of our political uh, categories of, of like capitalism versus socialism, right? So, so you know, if, if we're capitalists, we're thinking, well, I mean, the, the core value here is sort of like freedom and responsibility. So we can promote that, but if somebody's not living up to that ideal, that's their fault. Or a socialist ideal is sort of like, well, we're, no, we need to value this idea of everybody in equal, but we're just going to force it upon everybody. And so we struggle in the church of, of knowing how do we land on these things because we can't get these, these worldly concepts out of our mind and we can't stop thinking like capitalists or socialists. It seems to me that what the Scripture is saying to us is um, stop thinking in man-made concepts. Jesus isn't calling us to socialism. He's not calling us to capitalism. You know what he's calling us to? Love. Love. You love each other. You're one. You care for each other. So we're not dealing with man-made constructs here. We're dealing with a God-made construct. Unity in the church. And to promote that true spiritual health, Yes, there's, there's a guard against going back into those man-made ways of thinking to guard against the abuses of that generosity. And they're important to highlight. 2 Corinthians 8, I think we're still there, verses 13 to 15. He says, I don't mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So again, he's saying, you know, guard yourself from going into these ideas, these human constructs about, about what fairness looks like. He's saying, look, those of you who have, understand something. Everything is a gift from God. The Spirit has bestowed upon you gifts, both spiritual and material for the building up and the edification of the body. And as he gives to you, give away. Because there's going to be a time when maybe you're going to be the one in need. And those that you've given to may be the ones that he has now given to to supply your need. So he's saying, don't worry about this whole fairness thing. God will figure that out, but it's bound up in love and not human constructs. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says something to the Thessalonian church that's along the same lines. Verse 11, he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, 
Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now some of you say, oh, there, there's the capitalism. No. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This isn't a, this isn't a plug for capitalism. You know what it's a plug for? It's a plug for love. Don't be a moocher in love. Love is a two-way street. Right? If, if, if I'm going to be lazy and I don't say, well, hey, there's this great thing called the church where everybody's like looking to take care of everybody's needs and I can just go in there and get all my needs met and never give back, then you're not a brother or a sister in the Lord because you don't understand love. You don't understand grace. You don't understand the gospel. Right? So there's guards against idleness and, and laziness. But the idea here is, look, again, go back to the, the point. Every member matters. You can't just be a taker. You're a giver because God has given you gifts to give away. So Paul and Bootser, most importantly, the Lord, want us to understand something. Look, church, this is who you are. You're one body. And every one of you matters. Every one of you has been chosen by me, gifted by me, because all of you together make up the body. This is so important. Everybody's got to be a part. And the way that you're going to care for one another is not just to build one another up spiritually, but to take care of each other holistically. Look like you really are one. So what's the application for us? Well, here's a question that I, I get frequently. And it's a great question. I want to try to answer it for all of you. The question is, what's my role? What's my role? And the reason why I think that question gets asked is because we still struggle with this institutional mindset. You know, like there's, there's ministries that are happening in the church that are sort of programmed and set up. And there are some people, we can look around and say, some people are involved in those. You got people who are leading a community group or teaching a, a gospel life class or who are, who are working in the greeters ministry. And there's like these places, there's these little, these little spots that can be filled. And if, if you're not filling one of those spots, you can often say, well, what's my role? It's a valid question. It's a good question. But, but break through that understanding of, of just the institutional openings. You want to know what your role is? Your role is being here, available to the other members of the church to use whatever spiritual gifts God has given you to bless them. And it doesn't always have a neat packaging to it. It doesn't always have a neat role, sort of like easily identifiable. But, but you can count on this. Because of, of what we've been taught from God's Word, your presence here is needed. I'm thinking of, of one conversation that I had with somebody um, 
fairly recently, and they're in the room, and I haven't told you this, the person that I'm talking about, but I wonder if you'll know I'm talking about you. I hope you will. And afterwards, I'll try to find you and make sure you do know. Somebody's asked me this question, like, I don't really know what my role is here. As I was thinking about that and trying to figure out, even, even myself getting kind of stuck and trying to think about a, like a, little, a little hole I can plug the peg into, it dawned on me that this person regularly, regularly reaches out to me with a text message or a phone call or a card and is encouraging me. I mean encouraging me in ways that will bring tears to my eyes. You know, like, uh, there's just something very special about this, this person's role in the body of Christ that unlike anybody else, they can, they, can, they can bless me. And I know that it's not just me that they do that to. They'll do it to other people. And it, it dawned on me as I was thinking about this, what's your role? Man, that's your role. That's such an important part of the body. And each one of us has been given various gifts in, in those ways that, that need, just need to be exercised. And they don't, you don't always have to look for like a clear-cut little uh, a box to put it in. Just be present with your brothers and sisters in Christ and love on them. And I'm telling you, by the Spirit's design, you're fulfilling your role. You're fulfilling their role. Now that said, are you doing that? A second question we can ask for application is, how are you serving? Now having just said that there's not always boxes that we need to put everything in, there are boxes that exist. There are ministries that exist. We have opportunities here like community groups. We have opportunities here like serving in our children's ministry or our youth ministry, our ESL outreach and ministry, the church plant and the core team there, or just being involved in ways to see that take root and plant seeds up in Rogers Park. We have things like greeting team. I mean, there are, there are boxes that exist. And, and I have to tell you this. Every one of those boxes has openings, has needs. Can I just encourage you with, with a couple of them? I, I've mentioned them already, but, but you know, we've talked regularly up front about how our children's ministry is in need of volunteers. And we've struggled to, fi- to find people to come in and serve. That shouldn't be in the body of Christ. Why? Well, so you say, well, I, I don't know if I'm like, I'm, I'm just not really like geared for or wired for working with kids. Well, who cares? I, I mean, seriously, who cares? Are you, are you called by God to make disciples and to build up the body of Christ. Yes, you are. Are our children vital members of the body of Christ who need to be built up and edified? Yes, they are. So serve them. Love them. I could say that about our ESL ministry. I could say that about our youth discipleship needs. I could say that about how we're going to be involved together in seeing the church plant get going in Rogers Park. You think, well, I'm not, I'm not called to move to Rogers Park and to be a part of the core team. That's okay. We're called together to, to see that work take shape, and we're going to have opportunities for all of us to be able to go and, and serve in some ways up there. We're just called to do it. How are we serving? 
How are we serving? And again, keep in mind that there's plenty of non-programmed ways for that to happen. It's a matter of just being present. How about this as an application? Because we read this from two of the passages. How are you giving? How are you giving? We're called to give our time, our talent, and our treasure. Are, are, you, are you generously supporting the ministries of the church? You know, there's a, there's a, a saying, there's an 80-20 rule that like 80% of the work and 80% of the giving usually comes from 20% of the people. That, that actually holds true in most churches. And I, I was trying to gauge our church and kind of look at our active membership and kind of see like how, how are people serving, in, like at least in visible ways. And I know I can't see it all. We're, by God's grace, we're, we're a little better than 80-20, but when it comes to our financial giving, we're really not. We're really not. So are we treating the church like, like we sort of value table service at a restaurant? Like consumers, you know? Ah, I come here, and thanks for the sermon. Thanks for blessing me with, you know, here, here, here you go. Thank you. What? We're called to give so that the ministries of the church can be functioning. That we're caring for people. We're ministering to the poor. We're making sure that the ministry of the word is, is, is funded and our building standing and all the things that the ministry requires. How are we giving? Are we consumers or are we members of the body? And then I would just ask this, this final question. This is something to prayerfully consider. How are we growing? How are we growing? Do you feel like there's, there's real discipleship happening here? Do you feel like you're growing? Do you feel like you have opportunities that, that you're investing into other people and you're seeing them grow? I, I don't say that as a rhetorical question to have an answer of no. I know those things are happening. But, but, I, but I'm wondering, are they happening to the extent that they could? Are they having to the extent that the Lord has intended? And, and, and I know that the answer is no if every member isn't involved. If all of our gifts aren't being used. And, and a big part of that has to do with our own initiative to say, I'm going to serve and love and care for people even if I'm not asked to fill a specific hole. How are we growing? And what will you do finally to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? So what I want to ask us to do, if you're a church member here, I really want us to come together at our members meeting and just spend some time talking about this together. I want to make known some of the needs that we know of, and I, and I want to hear from you too. Like, what are the things that, what's lacking? And how are we as, the, as God's people going to work together to walk in a manner worthy of, of what we've been called to and what we already have in Christ, how will we flesh that out in ways that demonstrate the reality of that calling? To demonstrate the reality of that giftedness. And if you're, if you're a member here who feels a little detached, then I, I especially want to encourage you. You're important. You matter. Your presence here matters. 
Your, your attendance here regularly matters. Your involvement in the body matters. We need you. We won't grow without all of you. And we want to grow. We want to see Christ form. That's what He desires. He has called us. He has equipped us. He has gifted us with all the members of the church so that we would grow into maturity, into completeness, into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So pray about it, would you? And do something about it. And let's keep talking about it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder, Lord, that you've, you've created something beautiful. And Lord, we, we need help. We thank you that you've given us help through your spirit. Would you, by your spirit, would you just speak to us? Would you reveal the gifts that you've given to us? Would you give even more gifts to us that we might truly love one another well? Would you help us, Lord, to, to make sure that every member has opportunity? Would you help us, Lord, to make sure that every member has their needs met? Would you help us, Lord, to be a, a real demonstration to the world around us of what love and unity can really look like? Because it really can only be found in Christ. And we have him. We are his body. So Lord, as I've asked us to, to consider this and to pray about it and to act upon it, Lord, please speak to us individually and then corporately so that we would be a healthy body of Christ. That you would get glory here. That your people would be satisfied and fulfilled as they're growing in Christ, even as they're giving themselves away. Father, we desire that because you desire that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.